say everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low carbon future. We sit down with those change makers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Lara Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. Okay, so I am very excited today to introduce Jim Blackburn. He's an environmental lawyer and CEO of B Carbon, a nonprofit carbon registry. Uh, also, Blackburn is part of my origin story as to kind of how I found my way and my place in Houston and in resilience and in climate. So I'm truly excited. He's one of my favorite humans. Um, getting back to B Carbon, B Carbon is a nonprofit uh, 501c3 carbon credit registry created out of Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. B Carbon issues soil, forest, and blue carbon credits. Their focus is on measurement-based protocols that provide a nature-based pathway to net zero goals and realize numerous ecological and social co-benefits. So, Jim, uh, tell us about, there's so many stories I want you to tell. (laughs) Start with B-Carbon. Tell us what it is. Tell us how it works. Okay. Uh, Thanks, Laura. This is uh, really a pleasure to be here with you and... um, we do have we we have connections that go back quite a long way since you know, it's good to renew them as always. Um, B Carbon is a carbon registry. We are a nonprofit, and our uh, job, and we're in the nature-based uh, kind of arena right now. Though we will probably get into plugging natural gas wells at a later time, but nature-based carbon credits uh, are basically credits that are issued for the natural function of soil forest, uh, the coastal marshes, they all take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere uh, through photosynthesis and store it either in the soil or in the timber. Hmm. And we are in the business of certifying landowners who manage their lands in certain ways and make certain, not uh, if you will, obligations or promises with their land. They will manage it a certain way. They will protect it for a certain number of years. Then we can issue carbon credits on those. And those credits can be used by companies that are interested in uh, kind of bookkeeping on their carbon footprint. It's a whole new kind of area that has just blown up since 2020. So 2020 is kind of, in a way, when the starting gun sort of went off. uh, And I'm happy to talk about that in more detail. But B Carbon's role is to be an impartial third party that certifies that what is being offered is real. And that a company can depend upon it and the public can depend upon it. So I like this because what we talk about on this podcast, we talk about energy startups, energy tech, climate tech, energy transition, Mm -hmm. climate action, depending on who you are, where you're from and where you are on the kind of um, socio-political technological scale. You, You choose your adventure. You choose your word. Um, but we tend to be more on the energy and more technological, carbon nanotubule, <laughs> um, <laughs> making products out of kombucha 
And that you and what you're talking about, on one hand, it's got a tech component in the actual, the registry and how you measure and verify, but it also comes down to the land. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. It comes it, down to, when we talk about Houston, you are literally talking about Houston. I'm absolutely talking about Houston. I'm talking about ecology. Mm-hmm. And basically, we're talking about valuing nature. It's been one of the great dilemmas. I'm an environmental lawyer. I've been an environmental lawyer for a long time. And we've always fought to protect the environment, among other things, because it's not valued. Mm-hmm. And yet it provides incredible, valuable services. Uh, all of our coastal fisheries, for example, come from the coastal marshlands. Um, all types of birds and amphibians and butterflies are dependent on our prairies and our forests have a similar function, but landowners don't get paid for those functions. Mm-hmm. And so really what we're in the business of is from, if you will, almost from a technological, certainly from a scientific standpoint, how we value nature. And we put a uh, scientific uh, tons of carbon per acre per year type of rating on nature, and then others set value. And this is actually taking someone's CO2 out of the atmosphere. We're just like what Oxy was doing with direct air capture on the King Ranch, Mm -hmm. except the technology we use is photosynthesis. So our job is packaging and organizing photosynthesis as opposed to creating the technology. Hmm. The technology is a gift. The trick is, though, how you turn a gift into a value proposition. Hmm. So we had on a previous episode been talking about how sometimes like old technology is new again, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The idea that some things have been around for eons, that we have innovated away from them, and that sometimes innovation moves so forward, you actually move back, right? You go back to a something, an original state, an original source that has environmental, it has climate impacts. And, and I think that you are a great example of that, right? Going to nature. Well, we're going way back. <laughs> <laughs> but you also mentioned that many of your customers, clients, what do you call the, the landowners that you work with? But the, they would be stakeholders, I stakeholders, think, really. Right. Um, that you found them because you'd sued them, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, both landowners, both the landowners and the buyers who are the Q2 key components. Some I represented as an environmental lawyer, others I sued as an environmental mm-hmm. lawyer. And uh, somehow I managed with most situations to come through litigation without creating enemies. And mm-hmm. that's uh, not always easy to do, but it has to do, but you can do things in a respectful way and you can do things in a jerk way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the jerks in our in the legal business are pretty easy to find in a mm-hmm. hurry. Um, and I, I always tried not to be such a person. I think, you know, many would agree, a few might disagree, but uh, you try to, I try to leave a good taste in everyone's mouth that I interact with. And, we're approaching the carbon uh, proposition from the same way. We started off at the Baker Institute by forming a stakeholder group, and and that started in November of 2019. Hmm. We started off with about 40. We now have over 550 stakeholders that uh, routinely we're in communication with. We hold a stakeholder meeting once a month. Uh, that is kind of a Zoom meeting that whomever wishes to can join. And right now we're getting about 100 participants uh, with each of our stakeholder meetings. But that is the widest array of people that you can imagine. Everything from the most conservative landowners and business people to incredibly liberal environmentalists and everything in between. A lot of academics, a lot of government people. We've never had a fight. 
Mm. We have been uniform on our goal of valuing nature and creating a commodity that will help in the energy transition. And we're learning all types of new things along the way. Um, we're learning a, a lot about blockchain technology. Mm -hmm. We're learning a lot about digital MRV. So there's a technological side, but we're also learning that there's ways that you can manage your land, the ways you can ma manage your cattle to increase the amount of carbon going into the soil. And those are things that agriculture hadn't studied much. Yeah. I, I love this this story because it's it, it can only happen in Houston, right? In Houston, we we like commodities, be it molecules or be it uh, 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 bigger chemicals. We like putting things together and and putting financing around them because ultimately this is about business, right? Like there's a transfer of value, and in the in many ways the innovation here is how do we recognize that value correctly so everyone gets paid? And I feel like I hear that all the time in Houston. We gotta, we gotta make sure everyone figures out how to make money. Everyone well, has to get paid. And, right? and you know, I trust making motive, making money as a motive. Yes. I think, you know, people know where you're coming from. I mean, I'm, I'm an environmentalist. I come from the environmental community. Money hadn't always been favored in that community. It's been disdained to some mm. extent. And I think that environmentalists uh, should embrace mm. uh, at least the market concepts where they can really be helpful. Yeah. And I think in particularly in this area, uh, we could make incredible improvements. We could transform, uh, we could restore the prairies of the United mm. States. We can protect the wetlands of the Texas coast. We can protect our bottomland forests. We can make ourselves more resilient to flooding. We can protect water supplies through ecological benefits of carbon sequestration. So the potential here is just transformative. And, and I think it's gonna be part of the circular economy mm -hmm. of the future. And this is where we're headed. So I'm trying to think my earliest memory or interaction with you, but one that stands out in my mind is I think pre-Hurricane Harvey, when we were starting at the city of Houston to work on a climate action plan and talking about resilience. And what's interesting is that even though we had been flooding over and over again, the resilience component was further behind the, the true um, climate emissions mitigation, right? We were worried about what can we do? How do we measure our emissions? That kind of strategy. And I remember either an article or a picture of you standing somewhere in a neighborhood with a sign. It was like, this is how high the water will be. And I don't think at that time that went over so well with the neighborhood, right? <laughs> but it came true. Well, yeah, I think so much of, I, I think, one, climate change mm -hmm. is real. Mm -hmm. It's happening, and I think the sooner we all understand it and understand the implications, the better, because in the long term, we may be able to push these events back, but in the short term, the change is coming. And the sooner we recognize that, the better. And a lot of these subjects were subjects that were not easy to discuss in mm -hmm. Houston. Climate change was thought of as being anti-oil and gas. And so if you were talking anything about climate change, you were immediately stuck in this group that was trying to put oil and gas out of business. Nothing could be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. But oil and gas will have to transform and will have to adopt new practices and new procedures. I think what they're finding, what happened in January of 2020, BlackRock Financial and then mm -hmm. followed very quickly by Bobby Tudor at the Houston Partnership, 
uh, began to embrace an energy transition, began to embrace climate smart strategies for business. And all of a sudden in Houston, we could talk publicly about climate change, mm -hmm. where before, if you talk publicly about climate change, you didn't get invited to very many Christmas parties. <laughs> so, you know, it, it that really changed in January of 2020. Mm -hmm. And since then, the conversation has really been about the transition as opposed to you just shouldn't talk about it at all. Now, Houston is a place that can get things done. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that's what's really amazing. And we've been embraced as a one of a number of transitional concepts that will be necessary for the future, not only of oil and gas, but of, of the plastics industry, of uh, all of the technology industries. Um, so across the board, what we're talking about with nature-based credits for uh, carbon offsets is something that I think will very much be in kind of the uh, kind of a package of alternatives that every company will be looking at. And what we're anticipating is all of these companies are now doing their footprint. Um, uh, most people who never heard of scopes one, two, and mm -hmm. three, many people are now conversant in that with scope one being your direct emissions, scope two being the emissions from electricity that you purchase, and then scope three being your supply chain. Scopes one and two are pretty well accepted by most industries. Scope three is still in the process of getting worked out. But as companies make commitments in the uh, Paris Accords of 2015, mm -hmm. 2016, requ uh, not, there's no requirement, they're not legally binding, but there's a goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Many of the companies have made a 50% drawdown commitment by 2030. To get there, they're going to avoid mm -hmm. as many emissions as they can. They're going to minimize, become more efficient, but there'll be a gap. We think that gap will be somewhere between 600 million and 1.5 billion tons in the United States, uh, probably quadruple that, five times that on a global basis. Nature-based carbon credits will play a major role in making up that gap. Mm -hmm. And so we expect about 2028 to start seeing this market just really mm -hmm. accelerate. And what I'm most concerned about is that right now, the infrastructure for delivering hundreds of millions of tons of credit does not exist. And that demand's gonna hit and the infrastructure won't be there to support it, which means it'll be a bottleneck and the price is gonna go up quite a lot. Yeah. And you know we're hopeful that some of these uh, buyers, um, the, the big oil companies, the big technology companies will work with us to create early demand uh, at a much lower price so that we can begin to build that infrastructure up. Um, but there's, I mean, we've got problems with testing labs. We've got problems with companies that can actually package credits mm -hmm. and work with the landowners and put deals together. Um, there's almost across the board going to be new employment opportunities almost everywhere in this space. Yeah. And so when you talk about infrastructure, it's it's not it's not the the credit itself, but it's all the the machinations and and processes around it that need to scale up and, and just even the sellers, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's all of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you think of it, it's a supply chain. Yeah. You know, you mm -hmm. mean, that's what I'm talking about when I say infrastructure here. It's a supply chain infrastructure. Uh, who goes out into the field? And we, we require scientific testing. Uh, mm -hmm. One thing our buyers told us, they wanted to know that what they were buying was real. Yeah. So we're, yeah. we test. Uh, we have... Uh, monitoring that goes on. There's all hmm. types of um, 
both aerial surveillance and uh, kind of physical intrusive testing that we take to the lab. We're finding there's already a limitation in uh, lab space for soil carbon test hmm. testing. Uh, some of the companies we're talking to are thinking about buying laboratories so they can create their own capacity so they won't be limited. Uh, we're looking at other countries. Uh, we're being approached from all over the world about what this infrastructure might look like. So that was a question I have. So you're Houston-based, out of Rice. Um, does it, what are the pros and cons to having a local focus, right? Um, I, we can talk about Houston and our own resilience challenges and how that impacts climate, but climate change is a global challenge. So you mentioned that, you know, the U.S. Is, could potentially be behind and there's a big gap in our carbon bank. Uh, but what about globally? And, and is there an argument that we could do more on a different part of the planet? Would that be easier? Would that be harder? Well, one, we're very concerned about the legal systems that exist. Mm. Uh, we rely on contracts. Mm. We make mm. contracts with uh, the project developers who have contracts with landowners. We require the minimum of 10 years commitment. If you're gonna sell soil carbon credits, we don't want you to be plowing the land for 10 years after each transaction. Our belief is that the market system, if we can get the market going, that that will keep the land in carbon transactions for decades to come. But we've got to be able to rely on the court system. Mm. Uh, if somebody breaches a contract, that you know we can go and enforce whatever uh, provisions exist. Uh, some of the countries don't have quite the court system. Um, some of them have dictators. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them have a system that changes. And if you rely on the government to work with you, can you rely on it 10 years from now? Um, we're working through these issues. We're finding some companies are much better to work with than others, but we are international. We have issued credits in the United Kingdom. We're talking to people in Australia, in Africa, and South America, um, Eastern Europe. Uh, there, there's all types of interest in this. Now, whether the buyers will buy the credits is the big thing. Mm -hmm. There is a real argument to putting a regional approach together. For example, a buyer from Houston, and Houston is the center of a lot of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that. Uh, we're, we as a county are probably uh, beyond many countries. So there's a lot of uh, market here, if you will. Uh, many of the companies we've talked to would like to have a local credit. Mm -hmm. So if, they could, if they're gonna be buying carbon offsets and carbon storage in the ground, if you will, it'd be nice to have a wetland on the Texas coast or a forest outside of Houston. I think we could probably find a way to protect most of the ecological resources of Houston uh, as we begin to put together a regional approach. And by the way, the best kept secret of Houston, we're, we have 10 ecological systems that surround us. Mm -hmm. It's the best kept secret. Um, it's not something that as a community we have pushed. And I think you will hear more and more about it as we go forward because that's ecological capital, that's carbon storage at a very, very high level. So we have great natural resources here. We're putting together a hill country uh, proposal that will uh, probably be attractive to say the Austin high tech community. Uh, we're finding that if we can set up regional kind of hotspots that we will be able to, I think, uh, generate a lot more buyer interest than just a general offering. Hmm. But we're also looking to get on a digital platform. Um, we're talking to one of the biggest digital platforms that's out there. 
about their offering our credits, uh, particularly our coastal blue carbon credits. And we believe that those will sell around the world. So the market is global. The opportunity is global. But sometimes the thinking is local, which is a kind of an interesting twist and that fits into more of my kind of interest in the Texas coast, interest in the hill country. We're looking at uh, restoring, for example, the tall grass and short grass prairies of the United States, uh, putting together the monarch butterfly pathway mm. uh, north and south, um, bird migration, uh, nesting areas for um, uh, prairie birds, um, which are the most heavily impacted of all the birds in the United States. Uh, those types of things come with these carbon credits. And there's also a, a direct resilience component to this as well in terms of we know that we're going to have more storms, we're going to have more floods. So the more that we can protect our wetlands, we can protect that, that coastal area, we're actually protecting future generations of Houstonians in our cities, right? Absolutely. Uh, the uh, concept comes out of resilience. I mean, B-carbon was born out of the severe storm center at Rice. When we were looking at the Texas coast after Hurricane Ike, we realized that Ike really did most of its damage, if you will, east of Houston. Mm -hmm. And it, its surge went into undeveloped land for the most part. Chambers County, Jefferson County have huge areas of undeveloped, low-lying land. And we were fortunate we could have had one of the worst disasters in United States history if, if Ike had gone 50, 100 miles further south. Uh, but we had open lands to absorb that surge. That is a wonderful flood protection concept. So we were trying to figure out how to keep, that we've got 6 million low-lying acres on the Texas coast that we would like to, frankly, keep undeveloped. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're not going to regulate in Texas to do it. I mean, that's just not <laughs> happening. Uh, but we can pay the landowners. Yeah. And if we could figure out how to pay the landowners, most of them want to stay in farming and ranching, but the economics are squeezing them. So if we can help with 50 or or $100 an acre of income, that would make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when you think about the price right now, we're getting probably $20, $25 a ton oh, wow. for a um, high-quality tested carbon credit. In the U.K., that's probably upwards of 50 to $60 a ton. Um, I would anticipate when we get a little closer to 2028, 2029, we're going to be in excess of $100 oh. a ton. So that type of income could be very helpful to a coastal farmer or to a farmer and rancher anywhere in the United States. Uh, you know, uh, $20 to $30, we've been told, would make a difference per acre mm -hmm. uh, for most of these landowners. So our focus is getting money to the landowners. And uh, we're a nonprofit, so we don't actually control the transactions. We have a processing fee. But we're now... Uh, we're changing our view of what a uh, carbon registry is. Mm. We started off as being very passive. We were going to take the applications that came to us process. Now we're working more aggressively with buyers mm -hmm. and with project developers to try to develop both the demand and the capacity yeah. to uh, kind of move forward in this space. And um, I, I like the catalyst role. I've always been sort of um, activist in what I have done and, um, I think it's a different, it's an emerging different role for a carbon registry. Um, many of the established registries are a little more staid. Mm -hmm. I think we've got more of a wildcat uh, type of uh, approach to it, which of course is right here in, you know, being in Houston, uh, that kind of entrepreneurial, uh, you know, aggressiveness, even for a nonprofit is kind of interesting. 
Yeah. Entrepreneurs uh, are the wildfires <laughs> of of the future, right? I think so. It, Absolutely. It, it takes all kinds. Yeah. No, I I wanted to double click on on something you said with the the value of carbon. I was amazed that you said twenty five dollars a ton. When I was thinking and looking about this at my last company um, that was doing uh, emissions offsets, uh, we were told the most you can get is four dollars a ton. And and this was back in 2015, 2016. Right. And so, you know, the world has changed, right? And and I was looking at a startup recently who was projecting that they believed that their high quality carbon um, uh, technology it was a direct air capture technology. They were projecting they could they could get a thousand dollars a ton. And when I hear these numbers, I think that's that's crazy. But it's good crazy in the sense that the the market is there, the demand is there. That's what's driving right. the price, and um, that allows us to to bring products, essentially carbon you know carbon credit products to market that maybe weren't feasible under a four dollars a ton regime. Like well, that's that's that's, that's, that's right. different. I mean, yeah. now there's a huge spread. I liken mm -hmm. uh, nature based carbon credits to a little bit like buying a car. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different varieties out there. There's ours are tested. Mm -hmm. There are credits that are being offered strictly with uh, backed up by computer modeling only. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's all algorithms. It's all you know predictions, but no testing. Mm -hmm. um, well, that has some valid for some validity, but ours we actually will have test results and mm -hmm. we will show that there's an increase in carbon. Mm -hmm. We think those credits will be the highest price credits, the ones that are actually proven with some kind of backed up by scientific data. Some of the credits that have been sold, there've been a couple of scams that have come mm -hmm. to light lately in the nature-based space. Uh, the Guardian just ran an expose on some of the, what are called uh, avoided conversion credits. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of forests uh, were kind of put into, um, uh, kind of consortium, if you will, kind of a, a package of forest lands would put together. And the promise was made, these forests will never be cut. Uh, and then credits were issued on the basis of the avoided conversion of those forests. Well, some of them have been converted, even though that was promised they wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And others have caught fire and burned. Uh, yeah. There was a big forest in Oregon that burned that was a carbon credit, California carbon credit forest. So, those are the types of things we have to be very careful about. Mm -hmm. um, we try to work with the landowners uh, to get the commitments, and we try to be able to enforce those commitments to back up the credit. But we also want the science to show that the credit is actually accruing. Um, those are the types of interesting things that we're working on. What's the largest uh, sized project? Well, we are we're working. The larger the tract, the cheaper the testing cost because you get economies of scale. Uh, if you have a hundred acre tract and it has three or four different soil types, you're going to do a lot of testing because you have to statistically categorize each of those four types. If you have the same four types across ten thousand acres, uh, you can probably do the same amount of testing you did on a hundred acres and be able to characterize it. So. There are definitely economies of scale that we're finding. Um, on the Texas coast, we're looking at building structures to protect the wetlands from erosion. Mm. The wetlands have stored tremendous amounts of carbon. And if we can protect the toe of the wetland, 
Mm-hmm. We anticipate sea level rise coming, and it may actually, and we, we think it will kill all the wetlands on the Texas coast if we don't do something. So we're putting these living shorelines up to hopefully catch more sediment and help the marsh build mm. as sea level rises. But even if the marsh dies, by putting the living shoreline at the front end of the marsh, we can prevent the erosion of the toe, which should protect all of that stored carbon. We have a uh, concept. Um, we put out a paper with the Texas Coastal Exchange called the Thousand Mile Living Shoreline Project. And uh, one of those funny stories, uh, you know, someone kept trying to get a hold of us and uh, we didn't do a good job of getting back with them. And finally, they kind of said, look, we're serious and we want to build 250 miles of your thousand mile shoreline. Mm-hmm. They're willing to commit $500 million wow. to building this on the Texas coast. And that is under what? Mm-hmm. You know, that, you know, we have signed a memorandum of agreement. We're working on it. We are developing a blue carbon protocol that will back up those credits. And I think that will happen. I mean, so, you know, 250 miles of the Texas coast, uh, you know, that's hundreds of a couple of hundred thousand acres of uh, coastal wetlands. Um, that's that's nice. Yeah. You know, that's 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 good. Good stuff. Uh, Is it something where. Um, you're protecting the natural habitat. Can you build artificial habitat? I mean, you're, you're talking about that, but um, and still get credits for that? Well, we're looking at, for example, planting forests. Mm-hmm. You can certainly plant forests. Uh, we're looking at the potential of mangroves on the mm-hmm. Texas coast. They're <laughs> beginning to move up from Mexico. Uh, and we have a stand up in Port Aransas. Uh, Lighthouse Lakes has a beautiful mangrove stand. Uh, and we don't want mangroves where the hooping cranes winter. So... You know, there are certain areas that we'd like to keep mangroves out of. But further south in the Laguna Madre, mangroves would be perfect. That's a hypersaline lagoon. It uh, doesn't have Spartana alterniflora kind of grassland wetlands. And uh, planting uh, mangroves down there would be great. So we're looking very carefully at that. We're looking at plugging natural gas wells to uh, cap off the methane that's mm-hmm. leaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a nature-based solution. That's getting us a little more into technology and offsets. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're even looking at something like following commercial timber. Mm -hmm. Um, The -hmm. timber gets cut, goes into a sawmill, gets cut up and made into lumber that goes into a building. And we're now seeing pressed wood buildings like what Rice is building. And you can get rid of structural steel and structural concrete in exchange for wood. Well, one, we think we can sell carbon credits for the wood that gets put into a building. Because mm, that's hot. stored carbon. Yeah. And as long as you have renewable uh, forestry, then we think we can issue credits over here for um, the building. And then we may be able to issue uh, credits for the reduction in the footprint of the built building itself. And so working, uh, we're working with an architectural firm to begin to see if we can develop a methodology there. So there's all sorts of very interesting what are called life cycle analyses going on where we look at carbon footprint reductions and uh, basically we're creating incentives, economic incentives for transforming the economy. Mm-hmm. And over time, this could have a huge impact. If you think about not only us, but 20 other B carbon-like entities out there and all of us beginning to pursue different concepts of, of carbon thinking, all of which uh, generate income, uh, that could begin to make a big impact. Yeah, I I want to go back for a second because I was I was thinking of the engineering 
on the wetland you, you, you were talking about and uh, a kind of like moral or I guess a mental conundrum I, I run into is you, you still run into people who deny if climate change is a thing. Right. And, and it doesn't matter if it's man-made or not. And, and I keep thinking to myself, man-made or not, we, we have the technology and the means to control to avoid resilience, or sorry, to to implement things that give us more resilience or can avoid changes mm. that we don't don't want to have happen. It doesn't matter where the climate change comes from. Right. Like we should do, we can do something about right. it. And it's it's amazing for me to hear that you're, you're thinking and looking at these things, which which I'm sure other people have no idea we can do them. Right? Like there's a certain level of of terraforming here that exists where we can we can choose the outcome to preserve. Or, or, or make us more resilient. I, th- I think that's amazing. Well, it's one of the most, I mean, this is by yeah. far and away the most exciting thing that I've ever been involved in in my career. And, mm. um, you know, I mean, I'm fairly old. <laughs> and um, it's nice to get excited about a new idea. And, yeah. they, you know, and basically be, like I said, walking into this room that there's no one else in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, have you made a wrong turn? Or is this just an opportunity? Mm-hmm. And in this case, I think it's nothing but opportunity. And now others are beginning to come into the room. Yeah. And uh, we're beginning to populate this area. I think there's also something similar happening in the plastics industry with the concept of the circular economy mm-hmm. and using recycled content in plastics. Um, not a nature-based type of thing, but it's really keeping plastics out of nature. Mm-hmm. You know, beginning to see the plastics industry kind of think in terms of turning everything back into recycling and recirculation in a circular economy. Well, the Earth's economy, yeah. if you think of that, is all circles and cycles. Yeah. Uh, you know, the carbon cycle, the hydrologic cycle, the uh, nitrogen and phosphorus cycles, migratory birds cycle, fish cycle. I mean, it's very interesting that we have worked against that with human economy. And now we're beginning to transform the human economy to be in sync with the Earth's, what I call the Earth's economy, which is, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the realization of a dream that I've had ever since I started thinking about kind of impacts that we have caused to the Earth and things like that. And, yeah, we're at a very, I think, transitional period. Mm -hmm. It is fun. Well, I'm excited that you are excited. I am happy for you because I mentioned my, my earliest memory was of you I'm talking about a neighborhood and saying like, we're going to have a, we're going to have a storm and, and the water could come this high. And having been in that kind of climate space, again, in that empty room, right? That's a hard conversation to have. And people kind of had this like chicken little phenomenon, like stop talking about this. You're, you're um, catastrophizing. (laughs) You are just very negative. And then what happens was it started to happen, right? Mm. The floods did come over and over again. I know I had people tell me, Lara, stop talking about climate change because it keeps happening. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's not how science works. <laughs> that, but, that's not how science works. But um, that was the beginning of the light bulb going on mm-hmm. across multiple people, regardless of, of what they ideologically believed. Right. Mm-hmm. But what I'm excited about is like you have moved from talking about the worst of things that could happen and people believing you to talking about the solutions, mm-hmm. right? right? Talking about the ways that we can solve it and people are starting to um, back you up, come forward from across the aisle, right? Absolutely. Um, all getting in on this. And so that is a fabulous Houston story. 
because you mentioned like when you think about emissions, like we are we are a a really really big dot on that heat mm-hmm. map yeah. uh, on the country and the world, and it is exciting to me to see how this story has changed. And just like a special shout out to the people who were standing up and saying this early on, because it was hard. Mm-hmm. And and you had you were one of the first people that I talked to, and you had been doing it for a long time. So it's some I I hope more people come to you with that two hundred fifty million dollars or or whatever right. it was. That would that was it. Actually, it's five hundred million. Five hundred million. Yeah. Like um, I think that that is the best reward uh, and award mm-hmm. that you can get. Well, that that certainly puts you know put a smile on our face to have that conversation. But I have really come to appreciate people that are trying to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've spent a lot of time. I mean, I've heard countless conversations about how bad the problem is, will be, could be. We've got to solve this problem, and this is one small piece of it. There are many pieces that have to be done, but I'm just glad to be able to get in the ball game and do something. Mm-hmm. Your, your story about how things really changed in 2020 really resonates for, for me. Um, I, I've been in Houston long uh, since 2017, but hadn't been really engaged in the conversation until the 2019 uh, 2020 timescale. But it's I think it's hard to explain to the rest of the country that the conversation shifted over the course of six months. Where I, I remember the same thing: people would not talk about climate except maybe in the back halls of conferences. Yeah, or kind of whisper. Or it would be know. a whisper, right? Yeah, and then all of a sudden, yeah. it was out in the open, and and the responsiveness to either you know the announcements from BlackRock or from the, the general sentiment in the city, just like it flipped like a switch. Well, it was amazing. Well, yeah. you know, and there's a concept we haven't talked about. There's three letters, E-S-G, mm-hmm. and uh, environmental, social, or ecological social governance mm-hmm. are three kind of criteria that are looked at for a lot of companies. And that's what a lot of the banks begin to look at. And I, I got a lot of calls. And of course, all of this happened during the COVID. Yeah. So, I mean, COVID hit in March of 2020. And so the the you know BlackRock, Bobby Tudor, those announcements came out in January 2020. COVID hits, and everything is happening on Zoom. Everything's mm-hmm. happening away from the office, and so it's a very interesting transitional process that was totally different. And we will never go back to where we were mm-hmm. from for many reasons. This ESG concept is something that if you're trying to borrow money, you're going to probably have to show an ESG plan which will be a carbon plan for the mm. most part. I think mm-hmm. ESG and carbon kind of translate together. And I can't tell you how many calls I've gotten from old crusty oil men saying, Blackburn, what's this ESG? <laughs> and you can put the word in. And how do I deal with it? And that, it was, a, that was a new element. So the whole kind of, I think the, the thing that really changed was the financial world mm-hmm. began to think that returns on their investment are linked to smart carbon policies within business. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily crazy carbon policies, but smart carbon policies. And that means you got to know what your footprint is. means you've got to have a plan to begin to reduce and change that footprint. And you've got to have a suite of alternatives. And the conversation has just gone from there in almost any direction you want. There are companies that are committed to technological carbon capture. Mm-hmm. There are companies that are putting renewables in their back lot. There, you know, there's just all kinds of things going on. Mm-hmm. I also think of 2020 and, and the pandemic changed people's minds because 
you had people who were in their homes and instead of driving to work every day, they were outside. They were walking down their streets. They were going to parks. They were using sidewalks. Um, all of this was happening. We saw immediate improvements in air quality mm. and smog and uh, like dolphins came back to the canals in Venice and um, like there were, you could see miles and miles of space where there used to have been smog and mm. just like people really saw the potential and the impact that you can have by reducing emissions. Obviously nobody wants to reduce emissions through a horrible catastrophe that was the pandemic, but that changed from a Houston perspective. The week the climate action plan came out was the week that oil prices went negative. Yeah. I will never forget that experience. <laughs> and that so many things in that like first six month period of the pandemic changed the status quo, changed the way that we thought it has to be this way. And, and to me, that like lit the fire under so much of what is happening now and that people got out of their rut. And they said, I have to innovate. Mm. I have to find new ways of doing things. And it's stuck, which is yeah. the other thing that I'm shocked about to mm. this day is that we could have absolutely swung back to where well, we were. We could have. I uh, think with the, with, and, and here's the interesting thing. All of this is happening without government regulation. Yeah. Yep. You know, and of course, a lot of the clean air, clean water stuff, it was necessary to have government regulation at that time. Um, but with carbon, I think that this whole linkage to carbon smart, business smart, that there is a linkage between uh, return on investment in business and a good carbon plan and good thinking for the future with regard to carbon. I think that has been transformative. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, I mean, I am as much of a regulatory environmental lawyer as anybody out there. And I'm working with pure market stuff right now. Mm -hmm. And it is a 180 degree transition for me to go in a whole different direction. But it's the right thing to do at this point in time. And I truly believe it's going to work. Now, I will tell you a funny story. Back in about 2015, I was talking about this voluntary carbon market. Mm -hmm. And someone told me, someone I, I have a lot of respect for, said, Blackburn, this just, you know, I wouldn't waste your time on the voluntary carbon market. I don't think it's going to happen. However, keep your eye on BlackRock investment. Mm -hmm. If BlackRock does something, then it'll change. And by golly, in January of 2020, BlackRock did. And my, I give a real tip of the hat to Bobby Tudor as mm -hmm. well as head of the Houston Partnership. Because at the same time, Tudor came out with the energy transition that the partnership has been pushing ever since. So um, that, I think, were kind of two kind of key changes that happened in January of 2020 that were transformative. And so when we think about Houston leading the discussion on, on carbon credits and the energy uh, transition generally, what are more things the, the broader, I guess, innovation community needs to do to, to maintain that leadership? Well, I think one, I think a lot of people don't know a lot about carbon mm. stuff. And so one would be just become acquainted with carbon terminology, uh, become conversant in a carbon language, mm. uh, understand what a carbon footprint is, understand scope one, scope two, scope three thinking. This whole scope three area is highly controversial. Mm. Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission has proposed disclosure rules for uh, regulated industries that are by the SEC. And they have defined scopes one, two, and three. Lot of fight, a lot of there, there will be litigation over scope three requirements. Mm -hmm. But that's where the ball game is. 
you know, at this point, most every industry is saying, okay, we'll take responsibility for our own emissions. But if I buy a, a product from a company, I'm also buying the carbon footprint of what it is. If I have investments, mm-hmm. I own a piece of the carbon emissions of those investments. And what's going on now is a whole lot of trying to understand how we analyze the supply chain impacts of really footprinting. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be some really interesting technology that you know, a lot of algorithms, a lot of um, life cycle analysis, how you parse up investments. You know, how do you, you know, I invest in, I don't know, Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Um, what piece of Microsoft's footprint should I put onto my statement? I'm the endowment at Rice University. How do we uh, figure out the carbon footprint for an endowment? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. there's some really interesting things that have to be thought through and they're very hard to think through. Yeah. And I, so I would say that um, there's probably going to be immense opportunities. I'd say from an entrepreneurial standpoint, um, we're going to be doing a lot of talking in the next couple of years. Uh, we're written into the Texas A&M Climate Smart Grant where they got about 65 million from USDA. We're gonna be talking all over the state about carbon credits and trying to help farmers and ranchers understand how the carbon credit systems work. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna be talking a lot about the infrastructure and of the companies that are gonna be needed. And there's gonna be a lot of new jobs that are gonna be coming, but only for people that are knowledgeable about these things, Uh, knowledgeable about how you do certain types of analyses. Uh, You're gonna have carbon buyers in Mm -hmm. almost every industry out there. Um, Right now, I would say most companies are still scrambling to understand the differences in different types of credits and things like that. So, I mean, it's almost any direction you go in the carbon space, there's opportunity. Yeah, and when I talk to founders today who are building more of a SaaS software as a service kind of solution, um, one of the, the, the first places I point them is if you can help verify and measure the carbon footprint and deliver a report, right? Like that is the product people need today because it's 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 being driven by the the equities market and ultimately needs to flow up into these investors and 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 a report is shareable. It is it it, it solves someone's problem and it might be the differentiating factor between, you know, a, a commodity widget and and the solution that solves someone's well, problem. What we need yeah. Uh, for example, in soil sampling, mm-hmm. we would love to dispense with the necessity for drilling a whole lot of holes and taking samples and sending them to the lab. Mm-hmm. We're running across entrepreneurs every day that have a new concept of how to maybe just put a probe into the mm-hmm. soil and test it, uh, or perhaps trying to do through remote sensing. Mm-hmm. Can we work off the vegetation to predict the carbon in the soil? We haven't been convinced yet that anyone has solved that, but whoever solves that is going to have one heck of a uh, business uh, that they they can work with. And we're looking for that. Uh, we're we're, we're, we're I've, I've signed so many non-disclosure agreements. I can't I can't begin to say on all of these artificial intelligence mm-hmm. concepts mm-hmm. about how to uh, aggregate carbon statistics, mm-hmm. um, carbon in the soil, carbon in the coastline. We're going to be doing, uh, uh, again, digital MRV, monitoring, reporting, and verification on our coastal credits. Um, we're trying. I've got a guy coming into the office in a couple of weeks, and we're going to be sitting down, uh, and he's going to design the software for the mm-hmm. translation. So, mm-hmm. I mean, these things are happening. 
Yeah. Well, talk about AI. Would that be helpful in this case? You mentioned other countries that wouldn't have the same kind of compliance. Necessarily, is there a component there? Well, I think the biggest problem with other countries, one is, of course, you know, we can through uh, particularly aerial monitoring, uh, whether it's by drones or by satellite or something in between, uh, we can figure out if someone is doing what they're supposed to be doing or not. Our big concern is if they're not doing what they're supposed Mm -hmm. to, how do we enforce it? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we have, for example, a default that you have to pay money. Uh, and we go out and, you know, in other words, you have to compensate us and we go out and buy carbon credits and replace the credits that you defaulted on. Mm-hmm. Um, can we go into court in country XYZ and secure that type of money? I mean, one, I mean, you may not even, you, you might lose in the United States, but at least, you know, you've got a pretty strong legal system to work with. But in some countries, you don't have that. Mm. Um, yeah. Who do you sue? Who is the who can make representations for communal ranching in Africa? Yeah. Who is the landowner? Mm. It's it's shared land. Is it the government that you should work with? Governments oftentimes want a, the biggest piece of the pie. The people that need the money are the the people that are working the land. Sometimes the government doesn't let the money go to the mm. people that are working the land. We think that's a bad situation. Um, we have heard that there are countries that require essentially payments mm-hmm. um, to work in their country. Um, we're not interested in that. Uh, so there, there's all of those types of issues, uh, but we are finding that there are also are countries that are bending over backwards to try to make conditions ripe for us to issue credits. We'll work with those countries. I heard a nugget in the in the first part of what you're talking about that um, if if someone defaults essentially on their carbon o- obligation, you got to go out and get a replacement credit. And I immediately went to there's an insurance market here. There's a huge. Right? <laughs> we are we are we are looking at insurance on our coastal carbon credits yeah. to insure the structure. That's, that's in that case, the structure is what's creating mm. the value. So we want to replace that structure if it gets destroyed by a hurricane. Mm. Uh, we you know we think we we can design. We're going to basically design a structure, and then uh, we're going to seed it with oyster spat. Mm. And so we will grow oysters on the structure. And once we get oysters established, we're in pretty good shape. Mm. But if a storm comes before that and destroys or destroys it afterwards, maybe the oysters don't grow. Uh, We're talking about a form of insurance that would pay for an event regardless of damage. Are there underwriters who are sophisticated enough to underwrite that absolutely okay and they are very interested we are talking to huh. multiple insurance companies interesting um fire insurance mm-hmm. uh for a uh, forest mm-hmm. um you know i'm afraid the cost of that may be pretty <laughs> substantial um yeah you know our hurricane insurance we're a little less uh, mm-hmm. worried about the cost of it um but i mean fire insurance um mm-hmm. insurance uh being a drought um can really uh, hurt you on carbon accumulation. Mm. Now, it, hmm. you know, again, if all we're doing is issuing credits after, say, five years of testing and we come in, we'll only issue credits for what actually accrued. We do have a process where we can in- issue what are called interim credits, and that's what we're most concerned about, mm. and we, we're being very, very careful about that. But we do want to issue some credits to help defray the cost of the initial testing. One thing we're really concerned about is um, 
lower income landowners that are in danger of losing their land. We'd mm-hmm. like to help them stay on their land. Um, we've got a grant application in with Prairie View A&M to work with uh, small landowners in East Texas that have forested tracks where we could put up a, when we're talking about building a cooperative that would help pull together uh, a number of landowners and then give them a presence in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is something that we're doing uh, that I would say is much more catalytic than what you would think about with a normal registry, where we're actually going to go out and mm-hmm. try to help, in this case, a lot of minority landowners be able to participate in this market, uh, which is, uh, uh, they don't have a lot of opportunity to yeah. participate in that market otherwise. I could keep asking questions for a really long time, but I do think we're reaching yeah. the end. Okay. We may have to have you back, or I'll just... <laughs> I'd be happy to come back anytime, but... As you can tell, I love talking about this, and you know, it's good stuff. So I guess first question, how can we help you? You're doing so much for the community. Is there anything that B Carbon is looking for um, that we can help, our listeners can help with? Well, I mean, certainly buyers. Mm. You know, if you can, uh, you know, I mean, if you can spread the word, and if there are people that are interested in buying credits that we would certify, we can put them in touch with project developers. Um, we are beginning, I think this year we ought to have a, uh, in inventory, we would probably generate several hundred thousand tons of mm. uh, both forest and soil carbon credits. This will be our first big year. Mm. We've had smaller issues in the, in the past, but we ought to have a couple of hundred thousand tons of forest and uh, soil carbon credits. We may have as many as four or five million tons of coastal carbon credits. Mm. That will be offered through a sales platform. But we would also be able to put uh, buyers in touch with uh, project developers. We'd like buyers to join our stakeholder group. Mm. Um, you know, we you know we like to have participation. Uh, that's kind of in a way our ethical base. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, it's unregulated what we do. So transparency in what we do is huge, and that's what our stakeholder group provides. It's sort of a I think of it as an ethical platform. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, if somebody doesn't like what we're doing, they have a chance to say, hey, we got a question about that. Um, You know, we're going through that process right now with our coastal blue carbon protocol. You know, is there anything about this that worries you? Well, yeah, okay, there's, let's talk about it. Let's try to work it out and get a system that we all can feel good about going public with. So, so how, how do people um, find you or how do they join one of these groups? Okay. Um, My email is Jim dot blackburn b-l-a-c-k-b-u-r-n at bcarbon.org mm-hmm. and send me an email and uh, i'll put you on we can get you on the stakeholder group we have a number of stakeholder subgroups that are like for example we have a living shoreline subgroup on the about the coast we have a forest subgroup we have a soil subgroup we have a diversity equity and inclusion mm-hmm. subgroup um Anyone who's interested in joining a subgroup can. Um, anyone who wants to come to the big stakeholder meeting, which occurs the first Thursday of the month at 9 a.m. Central, mm-hmm. that's that's when we start. That's when we have our monthly stakeholder meeting, and then we announce when the uh, subcommittee meetings are at that big meeting. Um, but yeah, just send me an email and we'll get you signed up. Awesome. I like it. Um... Anything else? Anything you want folks to know? Anything you haven't mentioned that you want to talk about? 
No, I just think that uh, we are busy. Uh, there's a lot happening, and um, and we're excited about it. And we, you know, we need your help. I mean, you know, that we rely on the stakeholder group extensively. Um, you know, we will be looking to employ people over time. So if there's somebody that wants to work in this market, send us a resume. We can't promise you a job tomorrow, but we'll be keeping track of people that are interested. And uh, as things come along, uh, we will be looking. Uh, we have research projects uh, with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Texas A&M, Pecan Street in Austin. Mm -hmm. Um, we have, um, we may have a contract, you know, we, we work with Rice University very closely, the Baker Institute, the Severe Storm Center. Um, we'll probably have a big conference. Um, probably, it, it will probably be next year. It'll probably be in early 2024. And we'll be bringing some of the biggest uh, financiers in carbon space, some of the big buyers, uh, and a lot of the people that are making this happen around the world. Um, I mean, you know, it's kind of surprising for me to say it, but but we are within a global. I mean, we're working in a global market, mm. and you know, considering we're a little startup from here in Houston, that's quite a quite a nice thing to to say. And then at the same time, it's kind of frightening on one mm -hmm. level. So uh, we're happy for the opportunity, but we're trying to keep. Uh, I think integrity is probably our most important thing because we are a certifier. And we have to certify quality product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for so much of what you do for Houston, for fellow entrepreneurs mm -hmm. in this space. You taught me a lot about carbon and carbon credits. And I think that, you know, a year from now after you have your conference, uh, but there's going to be even more new and exciting things that you're working on. I have no doubt about that. Yeah, I okay. mean, again, this stuff changes very quickly. Yeah, thanks, All Jim. right. This is yeah, great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah.